0: And uh, Dr. Aaron Good, who um, is going to, I think, be looking at some of the questions and some of the evidence in more detail about deception, about instigation, exploitation, et cetera, in relation to October 7. Um, Aaron is very nice to do this. Um, as I said at the beginning, he, he runs the American Exception uh, podcast. He is also um, author of a fantastic book, Um which is based on his PhD, which I'm eagerly reading at the moment, I'm pleased to say. Um, And Aaron's going to talk to us for about 30 minutes um, on the issue of the deep state and empire in relation to both October 7 and what's going on at the moment following that in the Middle East. Aaron. Uh, Thank you very much, Pierce. And I have called this um, hegemonic panic and I have a lot here. Some of it is overlapping with, um, with Kevin. And so I, uh, I actually am going to, I'll try to skip through some of that, which is actually helpful because I have more here than I can get through easily. But a lot of it are just, just data points. So um, I want to, uh, we talk about deep events. So these do come from the clandestine state. They're events that are mysterious and they seem to come from the covert action apparatus of the government Uh, And we know that we'll never get to the bottom of them, or we can ascertain that if we are immersed in this stuff, because we see a pattern again, something strange happens, it is politically impactful, it overlaps with at least practices and objectives and aims of of the national security state of uh, imperialism, generally speaking. And so we can think oftentimes, as Kevin was suggesting, we have at least reason to suspect that something is a, a deep a, a covert operation, if it's aimed at the U.S. population, it's a state crime against democracy, we can identify these. Now, um, this was Dehaven-Smith's and Scott's definitions of deep events and state crimes against democracy, which Kevin just discussed. So my own uh, academic work was in part based on trying to form a synthesis between Peter Dell Scott and Lance Dehaven-Smith's work because... Uh, I had befriended Lance and got to collaborate with him uh, on, at a number of conferences and helped him with manuscripts and everything. And his, his loss is really devastating for me personally. And uh, so it, it was a great thing to be able to talk about these issues and uh, try to work on them in a scholarly way. And that was really what I dedicated my um, PhD to. So when, when, in, in terms of synthesizing these two perspectives, uh, Peter Dell Scott even conceded that the SCAD construct, or the idea of state crimes against democracy was good, but it should be amended uh, to say that it, is, it involves other elements that are, subvert, that are um, submerged and not visible. So it could be like a, a deep state crime against democracy, essentially. Uh, Lance himself said that what he had done with SCAd theory was still lacking a theory of the state or a role uh, uh, in any theorization on the role of economic elites, so corporate power. And so I set about trying to uh, address these things with my own dissertation, which eventually got published as American Exception as and the Deep State, uh, Empire in the Deep State, uh, published by Skyhorse. Now, there's another uh, academic here named Willem Bart DeLint, and I have not been able to sp- contact him, uh, but it would be good to talk to him. And he wrote this book called Blurring Intelligence Crime, A Critical Forensics, and he talks about an apex crime, watershed event involving the government in the support of a contested political and social order and its primary opponent as the obvious offender, which is then subject to a confirmation bias. And we have examples of that in U.S. history where an apex crime takes place, the assassination of JFK. And who did it? The communists. okay. And then the more we learn about Oswald, it sp- seems that he was pretending to be a communist on behalf of uh, elements connected to the U.S. government when he defected to the Soviet Union and when he was pretending to be a communist in New Orleans. Uh, Later, notably, when a presidential candidate was going to reinvestigate the JFK assassination, that's Robert Kennedy, he was killed. And the Patsy in this case was Sirhan Sirhan, a Palestinian who could not have shot Robert Kennedy uh, because Robert Kennedy was shot from point-blank range, uh, from behind, uh, from right to left at an upward angle. And Sirhan was standing in front of him. So note the, the use of the Palestinian Patsy is very significant, it's no coincidence. So I wanna talk a bit about these, uh, I'm just gonna run through these because I'm not, I don't have deep knowledge about them, but I, I noticed them myself because I always think in terms of these patterns now when I see an event like this. Uh, so Kevin mentioned some of these and I'm not gonna go into detail about them, but there's a lot of evidence that Israel knew about this plan quite a while ago and that such an attack would be hard to keep totally secret. So people suspect they had foreknowledge. There is a reason to, people have documented uh, suspicious insider trading, evidence that points to insider trading, which indicates foreknowledge as well. Um, The friendly fire aspect, how much of the uh, death count of the Israeli civilians actually came from the Israeli military response, uh, which is uh, a very open question. Um, a related question is: Was this not just friendly fire, but was it actual policy? Was it the Hannibal Directive, uh, wherein Israel, the Israeli military, does not want Hamas or uh, Palestinian groups at all to be able to have uh, Israeli hostages, especially Israeli military hostages? They will kill them when they are fleeing rather than allow them to have hostages. So, was that the calculation made on the night of October seven that? They would rather them not have the hostages and a high death count. They can just blame it on Hamas and it will allow them to uh, go after, or to pursue a pre existing agenda. A, a lot of false reports in the media of, of atrocities, the decapitated babies, uh, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of propaganda and disinformation, and uh, it's all slanted typically in one direction. The treatment of the hostages does not suggest that Hamas uh, would have slaughtered all of these people and, and, you know, sexually tortured and mutilated people. Uh, But then the reports from the hostages are that they were treated very well. That doesn't seem to make sense, nor does it make sense that they would commit those atrocities uh, given that the hostage taking has certain political objectives that we can discern and which would be undermined by, uh, you know, wanton uh, atrocities. There's the tricky problem of uh, the fact that Hamas seems to be generally uh, a creation of Israel, that they were backed and boosted by Israel. It's not that the members of Hamas don't have genuine, legitimate, deep-seated grievances towards Israel, but Israel seems to have created this group. And there's documentation of this. It's been written about by mainstream people. Here's Mehdi Hassan, who's as corporate and mainstream as it gets. But even he has written about this: that Hamas is useful as a foil for uh, for Israel, and they, it's a way to uh, prevent the creation of a Palestinian state. It creates an unsympathetic actor, and it undermined the PLO. That was the thinking at the time. Additionally, we know that they wanted to uh, expel the Palestinians beforehand. It was an Israeli official leaked uh, a think tank paper that was commissioned by Israeli intelligence, and it called for. Well, it, it looked at different options for the, to handle the Palestinian problem, but uh, the one that they end up saying is good is option C, evacuation of the civilian population from Gaza to Sinai. There's the longstanding opposition to Palestinian statehood, the fact that Many people are on the record like Netanyahu saying that, you know, support Hamas because that'll keep a Palestinian state from forming or it's been good that we have supported Hamas. It's been good that we've done these things to keep a Palestinian state from being formed. They are hell bent on this. They believe in a greater Israel, which cannot but be created only with uh, massive war crimes, uh, tantamount to genocide, which we are seeing now. Now. War and this issue of war and the deception that creates it, this is a recurring theme in imperialism, especially Western imperialism, and it just happens again and again. There's all these cliches about the fog of war and the first casualty is truth and all of this. Uh, Typically, these wars are fought because one side wants to fight a war, and typically they need a pretext as well. So. I just want to run through some of these pretexts of Western imperialism, you know, modern Western imperialism, and I'm going to have some, you know focus on U.S. side, but others as well. The Thornton affair. This is how we were able to steal California uh, from Mexico. This is a, the pretext used to launch the Mexican-American War. A very dubious, even um, Abraham Lincoln questioned it at the time in Congress when he was a Whig congressman. The assassination of queen min this takes place in korea but it's a, a very similar this was when the, J- the japanese had adopted western imperialist tactics basically they'd become as vicious as us they'd studied our industry and they studied our imperialism and they had what was something of a intelligence outfit this black ocean group pretend to be koreans and they kill uh, the queen of of korea and this is a colonial war they're trying to set up a colonial empire just like the west The USS Maine, of course, gets blown up. This is infamous, Uh, helps to fuel uh, America's desire to fight the Spanish-American War and get its first overseas colonies. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand sparks World War I. Uh, The Serbian group, Black Hand, uh, people have suggested or found evidence that points to them being related to the British Empire. Was this some sort of pretext or event or a catalyst that was staged by the British, uh, it's quite possible to me, I wouldn't put anything past the British. The Mukden incident in Manchuria is used uh, by the Japanese uh, imperialists, the fascists basically running Japan, to uh, have an excuse to intervene more heavily in Manchuria. The Reichstag fire is infamous, of course, and the Nazis uh, use this to uh, seize Absolute control in Germany. It's worth noting that at Nuremberg, it was established that the Nazis had done this, and then after the fact, because some of the people that were probably responsible for this were in the the government, it was embarrassing, and so there there was this new history uh, contrived wherein it was this that you know the guy had really set the fire himself, the patsy, Marius van der Lubbe, the communist patsy. Uh, but Peter Del Scott has a good dossier on this that he's compiled over the years. It's just not the case. Now, notice Jacobin. This is a good example of how feckless the left is uh, in the United States. The establishment left, the the left that has any institutional support. The headline: How the Nazis exploited the Reichstag fire to launch a reign of terror. Well, at Nuremberg, they found that the Nazis set the Reichstag fire. But this is something that the left uh, just ex- defers to authority. We have the most. Uh, Docile left, really, in the United States. Whatever the state tells them is the truth. They will say, "Okay, what's uh, yes, sir." Okay, um, the Gliwitz incident in Germany. This is even Germany with the Nazis, who were, you know, they had their own particular ethos, right? But even they need to set uh, have a false flag to be able to invade Poland because. Uh, this is just that you need a pretext. No matter how vicious you are, it, it seems you need at least an excuse to go to war. So they had people dress up as, uh, you know, people attacking the Germans, uh, on the so that the Germans could go into Poland. Okay, we know this pretty well. Pearl Harbor, of course. Uh, no need to go into that. How foreknowledge? How much was there? and that is the event along that leads to u.s entry into the war u.s victory in the war dropping the bombs on japan and then the u.s becomes the global hegemon uh, of the of the so-called free world gulf of tonkin incident very dubious event of course uh a major major massacre overseas which i think is worth mentioning now because it involves a, a mass slaughter is uh the massacres in 1965, which followed this bungled coup attempt. The more that you look at the coup attempt, especially if you look at the work of Peter Dale Scott or Greg Polgrain, Peter's work in 1985, uh, this paper, this essay in uh, a a Pacific Affairs magazine or a journal, uh, which is Canadian, he couldn't get it published in the American one, it's too sensitive. But he found that The CIA and one of its backers with this Lockheed bribery scandal uh, began shifting payments months before this strange coup that failed. Uh, Months before this happened, the CIA had shifted its funding to a backer of Sukarno, these bribes, uh, to a backer of Suharto, who would be used to basically depose Sukarno and afterwards a murder, uh, wh- uh, half a million, one million, three million. We don't even know how many people were tortured to death in Indonesia. I recommend watching Joshua Oppenheimer's uh, "The Act of Killing" uh, if you haven't seen that documentary on this subject. But notice again, Jacobin, uh, the, the lefty establishment, lefty uh, scholars uh, says here, uh, Michael Van is interviewed and he says. Uh, some of the American-focused scholarship, in a way, denies Indonesian agency and underplays the Indonesian role in these events. So this is a trope among you know what passes for the left in the United States with these covert actions and deception operations. They don't want to accept that these things happen. So you they, they and the one of the excuses they use is with a covert operation is if you say that that was a covert operation and then you're taking away the agency of the Iranian people or the uh, Indonesian people somehow it's the nice thing to do is to say that it wasn't, you know, the CIA. I I don't understand how this logic takes root in the academy, but uh, I think it has to do with the hegemony of uh, the covert action or the the empire and how covert action is so delegitimizing. Uh, That's why they make it covert. They want to say they're not doing it because it's something usually very sinister. So uh, this is Something we got to deal with. Uh, The academy, the academics are not going to help us because they're part of the establishment. The Yom Kippur War in 1973 is a strange war when you stop and think about it because the two sides, you know, the Saudis and uh, the Israelis were basically on the US side by that point, more firmly. Um, You had these gas shortages at the time uh, because of this war, and the price of oil explodes. This is a, a pretext for a massive increase of oil that people like Henry Kissinger had already been trying to orchestrate, according to uh, no less an authority than the Saudi minister of oil at the time. He said the prices, the price increases were uh, desired by Henry Kissinger, which it does save the dollar, by the way. Uh, it really shores up the dollar after Vietnam had brought down Bretton Woods. Now, another aspect that we should look at in this chronology, which takes us more up to the the present day, and I think has made me rethink, uh, all of these things have made me rethink the role of Israel in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, George W. Bush, George H.W. Bush, in 1992, uh, he ran afoul of the Israel lobby, and there's an article on it in the Times of Israel. Uh, He lost 24% of his Jewish backing after confronting Israel over settlements and that leaders have taken that to heart. So one of the most controversial moments is when he delayed Israel loan guarantees until it halted its settlement building in the West Bank and Gaza and entered into a peace conference, which would be later known as the Madrid Peace Conference. This is George H.W. Bush saying, America, the U.S., will cut off aid to you uh, if you do not enter into these negotiations for a Palestinian state. So he was looking to solve the Palestinian problem uh, and the Israel-Palestine crisis at the end of the Cold War because he saw it as antithetical to U.S. long-term interests in the region, just like Eisenhower did when he intervened in the Suez Canal crisis. There's always been a balance that the U.S. tried to strike for geopolitical reasons. Now, and H.W. Bush is no you know, uh, hero or great humanitarian or anything. Believe me, I'm totally aware of how sinister he is. And so this makes this all the more remarkable. Uh, that this person this nexus of the american deep state you know the the yankee uh, oil people and then the western cowboy military industrial complex faction he seemed to unite both of those but he still had problems with this israel contingency and it may have contributed to it may have been decisive in having him lose his reelection. um so he made clear the cost uh his, his case makes clear what happens to you that you will if you fight all these pro-israel groups you could go down Um, He had a 70% approval rating, and then he ends up losing. It's it's really remarkable. Now, at the same time, we have this other big issue, which is the emergence of a a move for multipolarity. This article is written in 2009, but uh, what I want to talk about here is multipolarity and the way that this became a geopolitical issue uh, beginning in the early years after the Cold War Uh, This woman is writing about it here, and you can see, since the late 1990s, the concept of multipolarity has gained prominence around the globe. Russia and China have included it or alluded to it in nearly all of their joint declarations, statements, and treaties dating from the mid-1990s to the present. So what is the U.S. response to this? Well, I think that you can look at what the U.S. is trying to do. They are using jihadis all throughout the 90s. So after the Cold War ends, you have those networks that were used to uh, defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. They're repurposed, and they're used all over the place in the 1990s. This is called McJihad. Uh, someone tried to write about this in the 90s, a political scientist, and he, he wrote the book Jihad versus McWorld, and it said, oh, it's the, the Jihadis, are they're, re- they're reacting to Coca-Cola and McDonald's, and they want to hold on to their old, old ways, and what's going to happen here? Another author, whose name I don't recall, but he wrote about this, uh, you know, shortly afterwards and said, it seems the U.S. is actually fueling this. This is actually Mech Jihad. This is, the U.S. creates its own, the West creates its own villains, and then it can go and, you know, either use them as shock troops somewhere or use them as an excuse to intervene somewhere. So this is important when you think of 9-11. Additionally, in Israel, at this time, you have the Clean Break document, okay? A new strategy for securing the realm. Prepared by a uh, think tank, the Institute for Advanced Strategic and Political Studies, uh, and it's commissioned by the study of a, a study group on a new Israeli strategy toward 2000, led by Richard Pearl uh, for Bibi Netanyahu, then the Prime Minister of Israel, and included other Bush administration officials uh, from the future, uh, Douglas Feith and David Wormser, and this document. Said removing Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq is an important Israeli strategic objective in its own right. So we see that Israel, the, the people that were Bush administration officials for the Iraq War, were making these arguments on behalf of Israel uh, at the time. I mean, in the years leading up to this. At the same time, the more establishment uh, forces in the United States, speaking of Brzezinski, represents them. There's a study commissioned by the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the Wall Street think tank that planned the US empire in the first place. They commissioned him to write this book uh, on US geopolitics after the Cold War. He calls it the Grand Chessboard. And he basically calls for controlling Eurasia and making sure that they prevent the rise of a counter hegemonic bloc, like especially that would include Iran, China, and Russia. So he's talking about how we don't want to have this. This is a direct response to China saying, China and Russia saying, How about multipolarity? The U.S. response is, how about we make sure multipolarity doesn't happen? And that's from Brzezinski, who is, generally speaking, if anything, a couple degrees to the left of the neocons. Uh, But, you know, these are people dedicated to American domination, Uberales. The American neocon uh, response to this situation is the Project for a New American Century and they're calling for full-spectrum dominance over the world forever. Uh, and they're also saying that it's going to be kind of hard to get the U.S. to commit to what needs to be done without a new Pearl Harbor. This study comes out in 2000. A new Pearl Harbor happens with 9-11 and the anthrax letters. And in terms of like being able to adjudicate these crimes, the ca- the, there's cause for pessimism, as we probably all know, because even if they get caught, red-handed more or less like even if some part of the state does its job and they investigate things properly they're allowed to and they find out you know that it points back to the state they'll just contrive some other cover story the the cover story for the anthrax letters after it was found that they were from a u.s laboratory was that the anthrax was from a u.s laboratory was that um oh it was just some random guy who just did this for some reason pretended to be a muslim because he had some weird crush on a cheerleader or something like that it was a very strange case uh, after they f- had another guy they tried to pin it on who, who fought that charge off very strange so the point is the state will not investigate itself if it's an apex crime the apex controls the inv- investigation you won't get to the bottom of it iraqi wmd uh, what we, we don't need to say any more about that probably uh, now in 2007 this is i think important and people have not remarked on this as much the the war on terror stalls it's you have brzezinski goes in front of congress and he says we need to be careful there's going to be uh, a, some sort of terror attack and it'll be blamed on iran and it'll be used to start a war that'll be a disaster for the u.s and the whole region you also had john karyaku's torture uh you know, fiasco his uh terrible journey, his whistleblowing on this issue, on the issue of CIA torture, which may have been related to this as a way to kind of publicly chasten the Bush administration uh, and hold back the neocons. So now fast forward a couple years or around, you know, right before, really months before the Arab Spring, you have Shbigniew Brzezinski, and he had been sort of putting the brakes on the whole war on terror, 9-11 wars agenda. And then he goes on television and says, or no, not in television. He's speaking at a i think it's a chicago cfr meeting or dinner or something and he says there's going to be a global awakening the whole world is waking up to injustice they're all connected at the same time and i remember this at the time because i i don't it may have been i was watching somebody interview on alex jones for some reason i saw alex jones at this time maybe i shouldn't say this but i do remember him saying like you see what he's saying they're all they're planning it they're going to try to wake you up they're they're cooking something up so i remembered that at the time and then it didn't this, the relationship of this didn't occur to me until later, but this was really right before the Arab Spring. I, I think Brzezinski may have been kicking off like the the revival of this whole anti uh, anti counter hegemonic uh, campaign. Really, I guess you would call it like this whole way of like trying to continue this agenda to make sure the U.S. had control over uh, Eurasia, um, because you get these Arab Spring wars. So And then it eventually comes out that the U.S. had helped nurture some of these groups. It's all very strange when you look at it in retrospect. It seems like it was really just the continuation of that whole agenda. Uh, it, it, that, the, not, the Arab Spring War stall as well, in part because of Russia. And interestingly, the naval base that would have given them access to the Mediterranean and to Syria is in Ukraine. And you have the destabilization of Ukraine from a Russian perspective. You have Victoria Nuland passing out. Uh, poisonous cookies uh, to kill protesters. Uh, not really. She killed them with had them killed with snipers. But she did pass out cookies there, which was not quite uh, you know respectable thing for a diplomat to do to a opposition group like this. But that's how it goes. The, the U.S. hand in this was really obvious. It was a coup that put in a threat to Russia right on its doorstep. You have Russia Gate in the United States, which was a very strange event and made sure the U.S. Uh, had a bellicose posture towards Russia at the time. It was a total distraction from the failure that led to Trump being reelected. Instead, it was just a way to to blame uh, Russia. We don't know where those emails came from, uh, where the leaks came from. Some people think it was Seth Rich. That's a strange murder case. And the internet angle was also exaggerated and was very strange. These Buff Bernie memes uh, were not really history changing in my opinion. So that was a hoax. We have COVID, which I'm not going to say much about, except that it came from U.S. bioweapons research, apparently, and uh, it had a major impact and it seems to have been used either opportunistically or by design as a structural deep event. Ukraine war is, of course, a huge disaster along with the the Nord Stream pipeline crimes, but you're not going to get to the bottom of them. Uh, Al-Aqsa Flood, as we've talked about, and this Gaza, Gaza genocide; these are seem to be related, also to all of those issues that Atif was talking about earlier that that are economic and geopolitical motives, but also the fact that U.S. hegemony is really crumbling, and I think that Israel feels like its window of opportunity for a final solution uh, here with with Palestine is running out, perhaps, and so they are going farther than. People would have thought they would gone farther than they've ever gone before in terms of just slaughtering uh, the, the people in Gaza. So I want to talk about SCAD versus deep events and, and ways academics can think about these and how useful they are. Uh, SCAD is useful as an academic or forensic heuristic. It's a way to put these things into a certain category so you know what you're looking at and you can talk about it. Uh, deep events or the way that Peter Del Scott approaches these might be more useful for uh, making detached observations uh, uh, for things after the fact and, and look, gaining historical insights and then thinking about how you can apply these. So these are very similar uh, uh, academic ideas. Now, in terms of what we should do in terms of thinking about justice, given the criminality that we see in the state uh, with when we study these things, Lance had a different idea than Peter. Lance basically thought, hey, I'm a a public administration person. You solve crimes and you hang the bastards. Uh, Peter thought that there could be a cultural revolution of the mind eventually and a a truth and reconciliation process of some kind eventually. But he he thought that people really had to be prepared, or he thinks this now increasingly, that people need to be prepared for uh, this revolution before it can really happen. He has some hope that civil society groups along the lines of the civil rights movement uh, could be. Uh, useful in this regard. The synthesis of these two lines of thinking. Well, I've tried to do that a little bit. The proximate root of the problem is that there's no lawful sovereign over the the domestic state and over the international system. Uh, Therefore, whenever we have these problems, these crimes we identify, we are reduced to hysterically shouting into the void uh, and not having any way to uh, have the rule of law applied domestically or internationally. Uh, But as with every empire, these people are hanging themselves. I think nemesis really comes from outside. The non-West right now embodies humanity's desire to be free from exploitation and domination. They are really doing the heavy lifting. Uh, to, to fight this sort of despotism that we're seeing. And it's I think its ultimate in, in embodiment is in Gaza right now. And it seems to be really the perfect encapsulation in a really horrific way of so much that we have done for hundreds of years in the West. But we are not able to take power, so we can just post um, protest emojis and have Zoom conferences and try to raise awareness but uh, and raise consciousness the good news is, I do think that this empire has been that's been around for hundreds of years is now on the on the on its way out, and that is exciting. Although it's a little frightening because we don't know what they have up their sleeves to try to hold on to power. Uh, and I have other slides here, but I don't want to go any further than this. So I will just yield the rest of my. Uh, I don't have any more time, but I think I'll leave it at that uh, and say that the really the problem is the despotism at the top of the state. And the fact that that this continues over the international realm, there is no lawful sovereign domestically, and internationally, there's no way to adjudicate disputes according to the rule of international law in any sort of fair way because of the US, by and large. Thank you, Aaron, uh, for a fascinating discussion, rich and detailed.